0: Warning, the following content may contain elements that are not suitable for some audiences. Accordingly, listener discretion is advised. I am your host, Jared.
1: And I am your co-host, Michaela. And welcome to our first episode of What the Criminology.
0: The case you're about to hear is about the brutal torture and murder of 16-year-old Sylvia Likens. Gertrude Nadine Beneschewski was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, to Molly Myrtle and Hugh Marcus Van Fossen Sr., both of whom were originally from Illinois and were of American and Dutch descent. Beneschewski was the third of six children. On October 5, 1939, Beneschewski saw her 50-year-old father die from a sudden heart attack. Six years later. She dropped out of high school at the age of 16 to marry 18-year-old John Stefan Bineshevsky, who was originally from Youngsville, Pennsylvania, and to whom she bore four children. Although John Bineshevsky had a volatile temper and occasionally beat his wife, the two would remain together for 10 years prior to their first divorce. Following her divorce, Bineshevsky married a man named Edward Guthrie. This marriage lasted just three months before the couple divorced. Shortly thereafter, Binashevsky remarried her first husband, bearing him two more children. The couple divorced for a second time in 1963. Weeks after her third divorce, Binashevsky began a relationship with a 22-year-old named Dennis Lee Wright, who also physically abused her. She had one child with Wright, Dennis Lee Wright Jr. Shortly after the birth of his son, Wright abandoned Binashevsky. Shortly thereafter... Binashevsky filed a paternity suit against Wright for financial support of their child, although Wright was seldom able to pay for the upkeep of their son. By 1965, Binashevsky lived alone with her seven children. Paula, 17, Stephanie, 15, John, 12, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, James, 8, and Dennis Lee Wright, Jr., 1. Although 36 years old and 5 feet 6 inches in height, she weighed only 100 pounds and has been described as a haggard, underweight asthmatic chain smoker, suffering from depression due to the stress of three failed marriages, a failed relationship, and a recent miscarriage. In addition to the sporadic checks she received from her first husband, a former Indianapolis policeman which she primarily relied upon to financially support her children, Bineshevsky occasionally performed odd jobs for her neighbors and acquaintances, such as sewing or cleaning in order to earn money. Binashevsky resided in Indianapolis at 3850 East New York Street, where the monthly rent was $55.
1: Sylvia Marie Likens was the third of five children born to carnival workers Lester Cecil Lykins and his wife, Elizabeth Betty Francis. She was born between two sets of fraternal twins, Daniel and Diana, two years older than her, and Benny and Ginny, one year younger. Ginny Lycan suffered from polio, causing one of her legs to be weaker than the other. She was afflicted with a notable limp and had to wear a steel brace on one leg. Lester and Elizabeth's marriage was unstable. They often sold candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands around Indiana throughout the summer, moving frequently and regularly, experiencing severe financial difficulties. The Lycan sons regularly traveled with their parents in order to help out, but due to concerns for their younger daughter's safety and education, they didn't particularly like Sylvia and Jenny traveling with them in this employment. Both girls frequently resided with relatives, often their grandmother, so that their schoolwork would not suffer while their parents and brothers traveled with the carnival.
0: In her teenage years, Sylvia Likens occasionally earned spending money by babysitting, running errands, or performing ironing chores for friends and neighbors, often giving her mother part of her earnings. She has been described as a friendly, confident, and lively girl with long, wavy, light brown hair extending below her shoulders, and was known as cookie to her friends. Although exuberant, Lykins always kept her mouth closed when smiling, due to having lost a front tooth in a collision with one of her brothers during a childhood game. She also had a fondness for music, in particular the Beatles, and was notably protective of her markedly more timid and insecure younger sister. On several occasions, the two sisters would visit a local skating rink, where Jenny would fasten a single roller skate to her strong foot, and Sylvia would lead her by the hand, as they skated around the rink. By June 1965, Sylvia and Jenny Likens resided with their parents in Indianapolis. On July 3rd, their mother was arrested and subsequently jailed for shoplifting. Shortly thereafter, Lester Likens arranged for his daughters to board with Gertrude Bineshevsky, the mother of two girls whom the sisters had recently become acquainted, while studying at Arsenal Technical High School. Paula and Stephanie Bineshevsky. At the time of this boarding agreement, Gertrude assured Lester she would care for his daughters until his return, as if they were her own children.
1: Shortly after the 4th of July holiday, the sisters moved in to 3050 East New York Street in order for their father and later their mother, could travel to the East Coast with the carnival. With the understanding that Gertrude would receive weekly boarding fees of $20 to take care of their daughters until they returned to collect them in November of that year. During the initial weeks in which Sylvia and Jenny resided at the Beneshevskis' household, the sisters were subjected to very little discipline or abuse. Lycans regularly sang along to pop records with Stephanie. And she willingly participated in housework at the Beneschewski's residence. Both girls also regularly attended Sunday school with the Beneschewski's children. Although Lester Lykins had agreed to pay Gertrude Beneschewski twenty dollars a week in exchange for the care of his daughters, these weekly payments gradually failed to arrive exactly upon the prearranged dates, occasionally arriving one or two days late. In response Gertrude began venting her frustration at this fact upon the sisters by beating their bare buttocks with various instruments such as a quarter-inch thick paddle making statements such as will I take care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing On one occasion in late August both girls were beaten approximately 15 times on the back aforementioned paddle after Paula had accused the sisters of eating too much food at a church supper the household children had attended By mid-August 1965, Gertrude Beneshevsky had begun to focus her abuse almost exclusively upon Sylvia, with her primary motivation likely being jealousy of her physical appearance and potential in life. According to subsequent trial testimony, this abuse was initially inflicted upon Sylvia after she and Jenny had returned to the Beneshevsky residence from Arsenal Technical High School as well as on weekends. This initial abuse included subjecting lichens to beatings and being refused sufficient food, which would gradually lead to lichens eating leftovers or spoiled food out of garbage cans. On one occasion, Likens was accused of stealing candy she had actually purchased. On another occasion, in late August, Likens was subjected to humiliation when she claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach, whom she had met in the spring of 1965 when her family lived in California. In response to hearing this, Gertrude asked if she had ever done anything with a boy, to which Lykins, unsure of her meaning, replied, I guess so, and offered that she had gone skating with boys there, and once went to the park on the beach with them and Jenny. Continuing the conversation with Stephanie beneshevsky and Jenny, Lykins mentioned that she had once lain under the covers with her boyfriend. Upon hearing this, Gertrude asked, why did you do that, Sylvia? Lichens replied, I don't know, and shrugged. Several days later, Gertrude returned to the subject with Lycans, telling her, You're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to have a baby. Lykens thought Gertrude was kidding with her and said, Yeah, it sure is getting big. I'm just going to have to go on a diet. However, Gertrude then informed her and the other girls in the house that whenever they did something with a boy, they would be sure to have a baby. She then kicked lichens in the genitals. Paula, herself overweight, three months pregnant, and also jealous of her physical appearance, then participated in attacking lichens, knocking her off her chair onto the kitchen floor shouting, You ain't fit to sit in a chair. On another occasion, as the family ate supper, Gertrude, Paula, and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon Leper force-fed lichens a hot dog overloaded with condiments, including mustard, ketchup, and spices. Likens vomited as a result, and was later forced to consume what she had regurgitated. In what would be Likens' only act of retaliation, she spread a rumor at Arsenal Technical High School that Stephanie and Paula Beneshevsky were prostitutes. She did this because she was upset with the household singling her out for similar accusations. While at school, Stephanie was jokingly propositioned by a boy who told her that Likens had started the rumor about her. Upon returning home that day, Stephanie questioned Likens about the rumor, and she admitted to starting it. Stephanie punched her in response, but Likens apologized to her in tears, and Stephanie then also began to cry.
0: Having primarily focused her blows upon Likens' teeth and eyes. Later, Paula used the cast on her wrist to further beat Likens. Gertrude repeatedly falsely accused Likens of promiscuity and engaging in prostitution delivering rants to Likens regarding in the filthiness of prostitution and of women in general. Gertrude would later occasionally force Jenny to strike her own sister, beating Jenny if she did not comply.
1: Coy Hubbard and several of his classmates frequently visited the Beneshevsky's residence to both physically and verbally torment Likens, often collaborating with Beneshevsky's children and Gertrude herself, with the act of encouragement of Gertrude sometimes using her as a practice dummy in violent judo sessions, lacerating her body, burning her skin with lit cigarettes an excess of a hundred times, and severely injuring her genitals.
0: However, when Stephanie's boyfriend, 15-year-old Coy Hubbard, heard about the rumor, he brutally attacked Lycans, slapping her, banging her head against the wall and flipping her backwards onto the floor. When Gertrude found out, she used the paddle to beat lichens. On another occasion, Paula beat Lycans about the face with such force that she broke her own wrist.
1: Lykins was forced at one point to strip naked in the family living room and insert an empty Coca-Cola bottle into her own vagina in their presence, with Gertrude stating to all present this act of humiliation being for Sylvia to, quote, prove to Jenny what kind of girl you are, end quote.
0: Gertrude Benichefsky eventually forbade Lykens from attending school after she confessed to having stolen a gym suit from the school after Gertrude had refused to purchase the clothing for her. For this act of theft, Gertrude whipped Lycans with a three-inch-wide police belt. Gertrude then switched her conversation to the evils of premarital sex before repeatedly kicking Lycans in the generals, as Stephanie rallied to Lycans' defense, shouting, quote, She didn't do anything, end quote. Gertrude then burned Lycans' fingertips with matches before further whipping her after she reportedly stole a single tennis shoe from the school to wear on her strong foot. The Lycan sisters were fearful of notifying either family members or adults at their school of the increasing incidence of abuse and neglect they were enduring, as both were afraid that doing so would only worsen their predicament, as she had been threatened by Gertrude that she would herself be abused and tortured to the same degree as her sister if she did so. Jenny was also subjected to bullying by girls in her neighborhood, in addition to occasionally being ridiculed or beaten whenever she alluded to Sylvia's situation. In July and August, both Lester and Elizabeth Lakins would occasionally return to Indianapolis to visit their daughters, whenever their travel schedule afforded them the opportunity. The last occasion Lester and Elizabeth visited their daughters was in late August. On this occasion, neither girl exhibited any visible signs of distress about their mistreatment to their parents, likely because both were in the presence of Gertrude and her children. Almost immediately after Lester and Elizabeth had left the Beniszewski household on their final visit, Gertrude turned to face Lykins and stated, quote, what are you going to do now, Sylvia? Now they're gone, End quote.
1: On one occasion in September, the girls encountered their older sister, Diana Shoemaker, at a local park. Both Jenny and Sylvia informed Diana as to the abuse they were enduring at the hands of their caregiver on this occasion, adding that Sylvia was being specifically targeted for physical abuse, almost always for things she had neither said nor done. Neither sister mentioned the actual address where they resided, and initially Diana believed her sisters must be exaggerating their claims regarding the scope of their mistreatment. Several weeks prior to this occasion, Sylvia and Jenny had encountered Diana in the same park while in the company of 11-year-old Marie Beniszewski, and Sylvia had been given a sandwich to eat when she had mentioned to her sister she was hungry. In response, Gertrude accused Lykins of engaging in gluttony before she and Paula choked her and bludgeoned her. The pair then subjected Lykins to a scolding bath to cleanse her of sin, with Gertrude grabbing Lykins' hair and repeatedly banging her head against the bath to revive her when she fainted. Shortly after this incident, the father of a neighborhood boy named Michael John Monroe phoned Arsenal Technical High School to anonymously report that a girl with open sores across her entire body was living at the Beneshevsky's household.
0: As Likens had not attended school for several days, a school nurse visited 3850 East New York Street to investigate these claims. Gertrude had claimed to the nurse that Likens had run away from her home the previous week and that she was unaware of her actual whereabouts adding that Lykins was out of control and that her open sores were a result of Lykins' refusal to maintain decent personal hygiene.
1: Lykins remained silent about the matter, although Marie revealed this fact to her family in late September.
0: Gertrude further claimed that Lykins was a bad influence on both her own children and her sister. The school made no further investigations in relation to Lykins' welfare. The immediate neighbors of the Beneshevsky family were a middle-aged couple named Raymond and Phyllis Vermillion. Both initially viewed Gertrude as an ideal caregiver for the Lycans sisters and both had visited the Beneshevsky residence on two occasions, when the girls had been under Gertrude's care. Nevertheless, the Vermillions never reported Lycans' evident mistreatment to the authorities. On or about October 1st, Diana Shoemaker discovered that her sisters were temporarily residing at the Beniszewski residence. She visited the property in an attempt to initiate regular contact, stating that she had permission from both their parents not to allow either girl to see her. Gertrude, however, refused Diana entrance to her property. She then ordered Diana off her property. Approximately two weeks later, Diana encountered Jenny by chance, close to 3850 East New York Street, and inquired as to Sylvia's welfare. She was informed, quote, I can't tell you or I'll get into trouble, quote.
1: Due to the increase in the frequency and brutality of the torture and mistreatment she was subjected to, as a form of punishment for her incontinence, on October 6th, Gertrude threw lichens into the basement and tied her up. Here, lichens was often kept naked, rarely fed, and frequently deprived of water. Likens gradually became incontinent. She was denied any access to the bathroom, being forced to wet herself. Occasionally, she was tied to the railings of the basement stairs with her feet barely touching the ground. She would occasionally falsely claim to the children in her household that either she herself or one of them had been the recipient of direct insults from Likens, in the hope this would goad them into belittling or attacking her. On one occasion, Gertrude held a knife aloft and challenged Lykens to, quote, fight me back, end quote, to which Lykins replied, she did not know how to fight. In response, Gertrude inflicted a light scour wound to Lykins' leg. Physical and mental torment such as this was occasionally ceased by the Binashevskis to watch their favorite television show. Neighborhood children were also occasionally charged five cents apiece to see the display of Lycan's body and to humiliate, beat, scold, burn, and ultimately mutilate her. Throughout the period of Lycan's captivity in the basement, Gertrude frequently, with the assistance of her children and the neighborhood children, restrained Likens before placing her in a bathtub filled with scalding water before proceeding to rub salt in her wounds. In order to muffle Lycan's screams, her tormentors would regularly place a cloth gag in her mouth as they tortured her.
0: On October 22nd, John Beneshevsky Jr. tormented Lycans by offering to allow her to eat a bowl of soup with her fingers, and then quickly taken away the bowl when Lycans, by this stage suffering from extreme malnourishment, attempted to eat the food. Gertrude Beneshevsky eventually allowed Lycans to sleep upstairs on the condition that she learned not to wet herself. That night, Sylvia whispered to Jenny to secretly give her a glass of water before falling asleep. The following morning, Gertrude discovered that Likens had urinated herself. As a punishment, Likens was forced to insert an empty glass Coca-Cola bottle into her vagina in the presence of the Binachevsky children before Gertrude ordered her into the basement. Gertrude called Sylvia upstairs to the kitchen. Somehow, the conversation got around to tattooing then ordered her to strip naked before proclaiming to her, quote, You have branded my daughters, now I'm going to brand you, end quote. She began carving the words, I am a prostitute and proud of it, onto Lichen's abdomen with a heated needle. When Gertrude was unable to finish the branding, she instructed one of the neighborhood children present, 14-year-old Richard Hobbs, to finish etching the words into Lichen's flesh as she took Jenny to a nearby grocery store. And what Hobbes would later insist were short, light etchings, he continued to brand the text into Lycan's abdomen as she clenched her teeth and moaned. Both Hobbes and 10-year-old Shirley Beneshevsky then led Lycan's into the basement where each proceeded to use an anchor bolt in an attempt to brand the letter S beneath Lycan's left breast.
1: Gertrude later taunted Lycan's by claiming she would never be able to marry due to the words carved onto her stomach stating, quote, Sylvia, what are you going to do now? You can't get married now. What are you going to do? End quote. Weeping, Lykens replied, quote, I guess there's nothing I can do. End quote. She was then carried back to the basement by Coy Hubbard. Later that day, Likens was forced to display the carvings to neighborhood children, with Gertrude claiming she had received the inscriptions at a sex party. That night, Sylvia confided to her sister, Quote, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. End quote. The following day, Gertrude Beneshevsky woke Lykens, then forced her to write a letter as she dictated the contents, which were intended to mislead her parents into believing their daughter had run away from the Beneshevsky residence. The content of this letter was intended to frame a group of anonymous local boys for extensively beating and mutilating Likens after she had initially agreed to engage in sexual relations with them, before they inflicted the extreme abuse and torture upon her body. After Likens had written this letter, Gertrude finished formulating her plan to have John Jr. and Jenny blindfold Sylvia, then take her to the nearby wooded area known as Jimmy's Forest and leave her there to die. After she had finished writing the letter, Likens was then again tied to the stair railing and offered crackers to eat, Although she refused them, saying, quote, give it to the dog, I don't want it, End quote. In response, Gertrude forced the crackers into Likens' mouth before she and John Beneshevsky beat her, particularly around the stomach.
0: On October 25th, Likens attempted to escape from the basement after overhearing a conversation between Gertrude and John Beneshevsky Jr. pertaining to the family's plan to abandon her to die. She attempted to flee to the front door. Although, due to her extensive injuries and general weakness, Gertrude caught her before she could escape the property. Likens was then given toast to eat, but was unable to consume the food due to her extreme state of dehydration. Gertrude forced the toast into her mouth before repeatedly striking her in the face with a curtain rod until sections of the instrument were bent into right angles. Coy Hubbard then took the curtain rod from Gertrude and struck Likens one more time rendering her unconscious. Gertrude then dragged Likens into the basement. That evening, Likens desperately attempted to alert neighbors by screaming for help and hitting the walls of the basement with a spade. One immediate neighbor of the Beneshevskis would later inform police she had heard the desperate commotion, and that she had identified the source as emanating from the basement of 3850 East New York Street, but that as the noise had suddenly ceased at approximately 3 a.m., She decided not to inform police about the disturbance. By the morning of October 26, Likens was unable to either speak intelligibly or to correctly coordinate the movement of her limbs. Gertrude moved Likens into the kitchen and, having propped her back against a wall, attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk. Although she threw Likens to the floor in frustration when Likens was unable to correctly move the glass of milk to her lips, she was then returned to the basement. Shortly thereafter. Lykens became delirious, repeatedly moaning and mumbling. When Paula asked her to recite the English alphabet, Lykens was unable to recite anything beyond the first four letters, or to raise herself off of the ground. In response, Paula verbally threatened her to stand up or she would herself inflict a long jump upon her. Gertrude then ordered Likens, who had defecated, to clean herself.
1: That afternoon, several of Lykins' other tormentors gathered in the basement. Lykins jerkingly moved her arms in an apparent attempt to point at the faces of the tormentors she could recognize, making statements such as, You're Ricky and you're Gertie, before Gertrude tersely shouted, Shut up, you know who I am. Minutes later, Lykins unsuccessfully attempted to bite into a rotten pear she had been given to eat, stating she could feel the looseness in her teeth. Upon hearing this, Jenny replied, quote, Don't you remember, Sylvia? Your front tooth was knocked out when you were seven. End quote. Jenny then left Sylvia in the basement to perform gardening chores for neighbors in the hope of earning spending money. Lykens again desperately attempted to exit the basement but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. In response to this effort, Gertrude stamped upon Lycan's head before standing and staring at her for several moments. Stephanie then decided to give Lykins a warm, soapy bath, although Likens ceased breathing before she could be carried out of the basement. She was 16 years old. When Stephanie realized that Lykins was not breathing, she attempted to apply mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as Gertrude repeatedly shouted her belief to the children and teenagers present in her house that Lykins was faking her death. Shortly after 5.30 p.m., Richard Hobbs returned to the Beneshevsky residence and immediately proceeded to the basement. He slipped on the wet basement stair and fell heavily to the floor of the basement to be confronted with the sight of Stephanie crying and cuddling Lycan's emaciated and lacerated body.
0: She struck her body with a book, shouted, quote, "Faker, faker!" End quote, to rouse her. Panicking, instructed Richard Hobbs to call the police from a nearby payphone. When police arrived at her address at approximately 6:30 p.m., Gertrude led the officers to Lycan's emaciated and extensively bludgeoned and mutilated body lying upon a soiled mattress, before handing them the letter she had forced Likens to previously write to her dictation, also claiming she had been, quote, doctoring, end quote, the child for an hour or more prior to her death, having applied rubbing alcohol to Likens' wounds in a futile attempt at first aid before she had died. She added that Likens had earlier run away from her home with several teenage boys before returning to her house earlier that afternoon bare-breasted and clutching the note. Clutching a Bible, Paula Beneshevsky, having stated to all present in the household that Lycan's death was, quote, meant to happen, end quote. Then glanced in Jenny's direction and calmly stated, quote, if you want to live with us, Jenny, we'll treat you like our own sister, end quote.
1: The formal statement provided by Jenny Lykins prompted officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Beneshevsky Jr on suspicion of Lycan's murder within hours of the discovery of her body. The same day, Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs were also arrested and charged with the same offenses. Lacking any remorse, Paula signed a statement admitting having repeatedly beaten Sylvia about the backside with her mother's police bill, also once breaking her wrist on Sylvia's jaw, and inflicting other acts of brutality including pushing her down the stairs into the basement. The three eldest Beneshevsky children plus Coy Hubbard were placed in the custody of a nearby juvenile detention center.
0: As previously instructed by Gertrude, Jenny Lykins recited the rehearsed version of events leading to Lykins' death shortly after 5 30 pm that afternoon to police.
1: The younger Beniszewski children and Richard Hobbs were detained at the Indianapolis Children's Guardians home. All were held without bail pending trial. Initially, Gertrude denied any involvement in Lycan's death. Although, by October 27, she had confessed to having known the kids, particularly her daughter Paula and Coy Hubbard, had physically and emotionally abused Lycan, stating that, quote, "Paula did most of the damage and that Coy Hubbard did a lot of the beating." End quote. Gertrude further admitted to having forced the girl to sleep in the basement on approximately 3 occasions when she had wet the bed. He admitted to having burned Sylvia with matches on several occasions, adding that his mother had repeatedly burned the child with cigarettes.
0: Five other neighborhood children who had participated in Lycan's abuse, Michael Monroe, Randy Leper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, had also been arrested by October 29. All were charged with causing injury to a person, and each was subsequently released into the custody of their parents. Under subpoena to appear as witnesses, at the upcoming trial. The autopsy of Lycan's body reveals she had suffered in excess of 150 separate wounds across her entire body, in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. The wounds themselves varied in location, nature, severity, and the actual stage of healing. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut, although an examination of the canal determined that her hymen was still intact. The autopsy also discredited Gertrude's assertions Likens had been three months pregnant and a prostitute, and promiscuous. Moreover, all of Lycan's fingernails were broken backwards, and most of the external layers of skin upon the child's face, breast, neck, and right knee had peeled or receded. In her death throes, lichens had evidently bitten through her lips, partially severing sections of them from her face.
1: The official cause of lichens' death was listed by coroner Dr. Arthur Kebble and inflicting a black eye. John Jr. admitted to having spanked Sylvia on one occasion due to her receiving a severe blow to her right temple. Both the shock she had primarily suffered due to the severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and subcutaneous tissues, plus the severe malnutrition, were listed as contributory factors to her death. Rigor mortis had fully developed at the time of the discovery of her body, indicating lichens may have been deceased for up to eight hours before she was found. Although, Dr. Kebble did note lichens had been recently bathed, possibly after death, and that this act could have hastened the loss. The funeral service for Sylvia Likens was conducted at the Russell and Hitch Funeral Home in Lebanon on the afternoon of October 29th. The service was officiated by the Reverend Louis Gibson, with more than a 100 mourners in attendance. Likens' gray casket remained open throughout the ceremony, with a portrait of her taken prior to July 1965 adorning her coffin. In his eulogy, the Reverend Gibson stated, We all have our time of passing. But we won't suffer like our little sister suffered during the last days of her life. End quote. The Reverend Gibson then strode towards Lycan's casket before adding, quote, She has gone to eternity. End quote. Following this service, Lycan's casket was placed by pallbearers in a hearse and driven to the Oak Hill Cemetery to be buried. This hearse was one of a 14 vehicle procession to drive to the cemetery for Lycan's burial. Her headstone is inscribed with the words, quote, our darling daughter, End quote.
0: On December 30th, 1965, the Marion County Grand Jury returned first-degree murder indictments against Gertrude Benichefsky and two of her three oldest children, Paula and John Benachevsky Jr. Also indicted were Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. All were charged with having repeatedly struck, beaten, kicked, and otherwise inflicting a culmination of fatal injuries to Sylvia Likens, with premeditated malice. Three weeks prior to filing the indictments against the five defendants, Stephanie Binashevsky had been released from custody upon a writ of habeas corpus bond. With her attorney successfully contending the state had insufficient evidence to support any murder or culmination of fatal injury charges against her, Paula represented the situation as one in which the girl Sylvia had become quite withdrawn and negativistic in her behavior to the extent that she refused to eat and showed no response to pain. Stephanie waived her immunity from any potential impending prosecution while agreeing to testify against her family and any other individuals charged with abusing and murdering lichens. At a formal pretrial hearing held on March 16, 1966, several psychiatrists testified before Judge Saul Isaac Rapp as to their conclusions. Regarding psychiatric evaluations, they had conducted upon three individuals indicted upon Likens' murder. These experts testified that all three were mentally competent to stand trial. The trial of Gertrude Binachevsky, her children Paula and John, Richard Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard began on April 18, 1966. All were tried together before Judge Rabb at Indianapolis City County Building.
1: The initial jury selection began on this date and continued for several days. The prosecution consisted of Leroy K. New and Marjorie Wesner, who announced their intentions to seek the death penalty for all five defendants on April 16th. They also successfully argued before Judge Rabb that all defendants should be tried together, as they were ultimately charged with acting in concert in their collective crimes against lichens, and that as such, if each were tried separately, Neither judge nor jury could hear testimony relating to a quote, total picture end quote, of the accumulation of offenses committed. Each prospective juror was questioned by counsels for both prosecution and defense in relation to their opinions regarding capital punishment, being a just penalty for first degree murder, and whether a mother was actually responsible for the quote, deportment of her children. End quote. Jurors who expressed any opposition to the death penalty were excused from duty by Leroy New. Any who either worked with children, expressed prejudice against an insanity defense, or repulsion regarding the actual horrific nature of Lycan's death, were excused by defense counsels. Gertrude Benachevsky was defended by William Erbecker, her daughter Paula was defended by George Rice, Richard Hobbs was defended by James G. Netter. John Benichevsky Jr. and Coy Hubbard were defended by Forrest Bowman. The attorneys for Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, Paula, and John Benichevsky Jr. claimed they had been pressured into participating in Lycan's torment, abuse, and torture by Gertrude Benichevsky. Gertrude herself pled not guilty by reason of insanity.
0: One of the first witnesses to testify on behalf of the prosecution was Deputy Coroner Charles Ellis, who testified on April twenty-nine as to the intense pain Likens had suffered, stating that her fingernails were broken backwards, numerous deep cuts, and punctures covered much of her body, and that her lips were, quote, essentially in shreds, end quote, due to her having repeatedly bitten and chewed upon them. Ellis further testified that Likens had been in an acute state of shock for between two and three days prior to her death and that Lycans may have been in too advanced a state of shock to offer much resistance to any form of subjected treatment in her final hours. Although he emphasized that aside from the extensive swelling around her genitalia, Lycans' body bore no evidence of sexual molestation. On May 2nd and 3rd, Jenny Lykins testified against all five defendants, stating that each had repeatedly and extensively both physically and emotionally abused her sister adding that Likens had done nothing to provoke the assaults, and that there had been no truth in either the rumor she had been falsely accused of spreading or the slurs each had made against Likens' character. During her testimony, Jenny stated the abuse her sister, and to a much lesser degree, herself, had endured began approximately two weeks after they had begun to live in the Beniszewski household, and that as the abuse her sister was forced to endure escalated, Likens had occasionally been unable to produce tears due to her acute state of dehydration. Jenny burst into tears as she recalled how just days before Likens died, she had said to her, quote, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. End quote. Sections of Jenny Likens' testimony were later corroborated by that of Randy Lepper, who stated he had once witnessed Likens crying but that she had shed no actual tears. Leper also testified to having witnessed Stephanie strike lichens, quote, real hard, end quote, after her mother had ordered her to remove her clothes in his presence. He then visibly smirked as he confessed to having himself beaten lichens on anywhere between 10 and 40 separate instances.
1: On May 10th, a Baptist minister named Roy Julian testified to having known a teenage girl who was being abused in the Benichefsky household. Although he had failed to report this information to authorities as having been informed by Gertrude that Likens had, quote, made advances to men for money, end quote. he had believed the girl was being punished for soliciting. The same day, 13-year-old Judy Duke also testified, admitting to having witnessed Likens once endure salt being rubbed into her sores upon her legs until she screamed. Duke also testified to one occasion where she witnessed 10-year-old Shirley Benachevsky rip open Lycan's blouse, to which Richard Hobbs had made the casual remark, quote, everybody's having fun with Sylvia, quote. The following day, Gertrude Benachevsky testified in her own defense. She denied any responsibility for Lycan's prolonged abuse, torment, and ultimate death, claiming her children and other children within her neighborhood must have committed the acts within her home, which she described as being, quote, "...such a madhouse," end quote. She had also added that she had been too preoccupied by her own ill health and depression to control her children. In response to questioning relating to whether she had physically abused the Lycan sisters, Gertrude claimed that although she had, quote, "...started to spank," Likens on one occasion, she was emotionally unable to finish doing so and had not hit the child on any further occasions. She denied any knowledge of lichens having ever endured any beating, scolding, branding, or burning within her home. Two days later, Richard Hobbs testified in his own defense, describing how Gertrude had called lichens to the kitchen on October 23rd and stated, You have branded my children, so now I'm going to brand you. Hobbs testified Gertrude had begun etching the insult into Lykins' abdomen.
0: On May 16, a court-appointed doctor named Dwight Schuster testified on behalf of the prosecution.
1: Although Hobbs testified this act of branding had brought blood to the surface of Lykins' flesh and that Lykins had begged him to stop, he remained adamant the section of branding he had inflicted had been light. Hobbs further testified that he had initially believed Likens would not be at the Benischewski household on October 26th, as Gertrude had informed him she intended to, quote, get rid of, end quote, Sylvia the day prior.
0: When Marie Benischewski was called to the stand as a witness for the defense, she broke down and admitted that she had heated the needle which Hobbes had used to brand Likens' abdomen. Marie also testified as to her mother's indifference to Likens' evident distress in relation to the physical and mental abuse she had increasingly suffered with her mother's full knowledge stating that on one occasion gertrude had sat up on a chair and crocheted as she watched a neighborhood girl named anna cisco attack lichens marie added that although all five defendants had repeatedly physically and mentally tormented lichens she had most often witnessed her mother and sister committing these acts before her mother had forced Likens to live in the basement, where the abuse had further escalated and she had ultimately died. Another witness to testify on behalf of the prosecution, Grace Sargent, stated how she had sat close to Paula on a church bus and had heard her openly bragging about breaking her own wrist due to the severity of a beating she had inflicted to Likens' face on August 1st. Then, Sargent testified, Paula had finished her boasting by stating, quote, I tried to kill her, end quote. When questioned by Leroy New as to the exhaustive interviews and assessments he had conducted with Gertrude, she had been evasive and uncooperative. Dr. Schuster testified as to his belief that Gertrude was sane and fully in control of her actions, adding that she had been sane in October 1965 and remained sane to this date. Dr. Schuster, was subjected to over two hours of intensive cross examination by Gertrude's lawyer, William Urbaker, although he remained steadfast that Gertrude was not and had never been psychotic.
1: Deputy Prosecutor Marjorie Wesner delivered the state's closing argument before the jury on behalf of the prosecution, as each defendant, except Richard Hobbs, whose head dropped into his lap, remained impassive. Wessner recounted the continuous mistreatment Likens had endured before her death emphasizing that at no point had Lycans either provoked any of the defendants or received any medical care beyond occasionally having margarine rubbed into scalded sections of her face and body, referencing specific forms of means of abuse and neglect at the defendants' hands and their collective failure to either help Lycans or deter each other from mistreating her. Westner described Lycans' abuse as, quote, stomach-wrenching, end quote and compared her treatment at the hands of all five defendants as being the equivalent in severity to that committed against prisoners in Nazi concentration camps. There was practically no fat on Sylvia's body. She hadn't eaten for a week. We'll never know the pain and suffering that Sylvia endured. The best evidence of that was in the picture of her lips that were bitten into shreds. In reference to the premeditated nature of Lichen's death, Wessner pointed the jury's attention to the notes Gertrude had forced Likens to write on October 24th, stating, quote, Gertrude knew on October 24th she was going to hold these notes until she and the rest of the defendants had completed the murder of Sylvia, end quote. Holding aloft a portrait of Likens taken before July 1965, Wessner added, quote, I wish she were here today, with eyes as in this picture, full of hope and anticipation, end quote.
0: William Urbecker was the first defense attorney to deliver his closing argument before the jury. He attempted to portray his client as being insane and thus unable to appreciate the severity or criminality of her actions, stating, quote, I condemn her for being a murderess, and that's what I do. But I say she's not responsible, because she's not all here. End quote. Erbecker then tapped his head to emphasize his reference to her state of mind before adding, quote, if this woman is sane, put her in the electric chair. She committed acts of degradation that you wouldn't commit on a dog. She has to be crazy, or she wouldn't have permitted that. You'll have to live with your conscience the rest of your life if you send an insane woman to the electric chair. End quote. Holding aloft an autopsy photograph of lichens, Erbecker instructed the jury to, quote, Look at this exhibit, adding, Look at the lips on that girl. How sadistic can a person get? The woman is stark mad, end quote. Erbecker then referred to the earlier testimony of a psychiatrist who had called into question Gertrude's sanity before concluding his argument. Forrest Bowman began his closing argument in an openly critical manner as he attacked the decision of the prosecution to seek the death penalty for juveniles, stating, quote, I would like to have an hour of the jury's time to explain why 16-year-olds and 13-year-olds should not be put to death, end quote. Refraining from acknowledging the catalogue of atrocities each had inflicted upon lichens, Bowman repeatedly emphasized his client's age, stating each was only guilty of assault and battery, before seeking a verdict of not guilty for each youth. George Rice began his closing argument by decreeing the fact Paula and the other defendants had been tried jointly. Sidestepping the multiple instances of testimony delivered at the trial describing Paula and her mother, as by far the most enthusiastic participants in Lycan's physical abuse. Rice claimed the evidence presented against his client did not equate her actual guilt of murder. He then ended his closing argument with a plea for the jury to return a verdict of not guilty on a girl who had, quote, gone through the indignity of being tried in an open court, end quote.
1: James Netter began his closing argument in defense of Richard Hobbs by referring to the loss of Lycan's, stating, quote, she had a right to live. In my own heart, I cannot remember a girl so much sinned against and abused. End quote. He then referred to Hobbs' courage in opting to testify in his own defense and the quote, savage and relentless cross-examination End quote. to which he had been subjected by Leroy New, Netter attempted to portray his client as a follower type personality who had acted under the control of Gertrude Benachevsky suggesting that had he not carved part of the obscene insult into Lycan's abdomen at Gertrude's request, Hobbs could well have been a state's witness as opposed to Stephanie Benachevsky. Netter ended his closing argument by requesting a verdict of not guilty, stating Hobbs was, quote, "...guilty of immaturity and gross lack of judgment," end quote, but not of the crime of murder. Leroy New rebutted the defense counsel's closing arguments by promising to, quote, Speak through the mangled and shredded lips of Sylvia Likens. I see her wherever I look." Outlining the catalog of mistreatment Likens had endured prior to her death at the hands of each of the defendants. New directly addressed criticism he had earlier received from Forrest Bowman in his closing argument regarding the prosecution, cross-examining children, stating, The prosecutor's job is to present the evidence to the best of our ability. Now, let's look at some of the responsibilities here. Each one of the five defendants had first and foremost the responsibility to leave Sylvia Likens alone. We had the responsibility to bring all the evidence we could find that could explain this crime. End quote. Referring to the sentimental closing arguments made by various defense counsels regarding reasoning and motivation for their clients' actions, their attempts to divert responsibility to other defendants or participants and their client's collective failure to either help likens or to notify authorities. New added, "All we hear is whining appeal, anything but blame where the blame belongs." He then speculated as to the reason likens did not try to escape from Benachevsky's household prior to the abuse increasingly escalating in the final weeks of her life, stating, "I think she trusted in men. I think she did not believe these people would do this and continue to do it." End quote. New concluded his closing argument by emphasizing the defendant's unison in their collective mistreatment of Likens, before asking the jury to dismiss arguments made by various defense counsels regarding who may have actually inflicted the fatal blow to Likens' head, stating, "...every mark on that girl's body contributed directly to her death, and that was testimony. The subdural hematoma was the ultimate blow. This is the most hideous thing Indiana has ever seen, and I hope will ever see. End quote. Stating that, not a shred of evidence had been produced indicating any defendant was suffering from a form of mental illness. New again requested the death penalty for each defendant, stating to the jury, quote, the issue here is not about the electric chair or a hospital, but about law and order. Will we shy away from the most diabolical case to ever come before a court or jury? If you go below the death penalty in your verdicts in this case, you will lower the value of human life by that much for each defendant. The blood of this girl will forevermore be on their souls."
0: The trial of the five defendants lasted 17 days before the jury retired to consider its verdict. On May 19, 1966, after deliberating for eight hours, the panel of eight men and four women found Gertrude Bineshevsky guilty of first-degree murder, recommending a sentence of life imprisonment. Paula Bineshevsky was found guilty of second-degree murder, and Hobbs, Hubbard, and John Bineshevsky Jr. were found guilty of manslaughter. Upon hearing Judge Rapp pronounce the verdicts, Gertrude and her children bursted into tears and attempted to console each other, as Hobbs and Hubbard remained impassive. On May 25th, Gertrude and Paula Bineshevsky were formally sentenced to life imprisonment. The same day, Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Bineshevsky Jr. each received sentence of 2 to 21 years to be served in the Indiana Reformatory. However, in September of 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Gertrude and Paula Bineshevsky on the basis that Judge Saul Isaac Rab had denied repeatedly submitted motions by their defense counsel at their original trial, for both a change of venue and separate trials. This ruling further stated that the circumstances regarding the prejudicial atmosphere created during their initial trial, due to the extensive news media publicity surrounding the case, impeded any chance of either appellant receiving a fair trial. The pair were retried in 1971. On this occasion, Paula Bineshevsky opted to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter, rather than face a retrial. She was sentenced to serve a term of between 2 and 20 years' imprisonment. For her part in Lycan's abuse and death. Despite twice unsuccessfully having attempted to escape from prison in 1971, she was released in December of 1972. Gertrude Bineshevsky, however, was again convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Over the course of the following 14 years, Gertrude Bineshevsky became known as a model prisoner at the Indiana Women's Prison. She worked in the prison sewing shop, and was known as somewhat of a den mother to younger female inmates, becoming known to some within the prison by the nickname "Mom." By the time of Gertrude's ultimate parole in 1985, she had changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen, a combination of her middle name and maiden name, and described herself as a devout Christian.
1: Of so Gertrude Benachevsky's impending parole hearing, created an uproar throughout Indiana. Jenny Likens and other immediate family members of Likens vehemently protested against any prospect of her release. The members of two anti-crime groups also traveled to Indiana to oppose Benachevsky's potential parole and to publicly support the Likens family. Members of both groups initiated a sidewalk picket campaign. Over the course of two months, these groups collected over 40,000 signatures from the citizens of Indiana including signatures obtained from outraged citizens too young to contemporarily recollect the case. All signatures gathered demanded that Gertrude Benichevsky remain incarcerated for the remainder of her life. Within her parole hearing, Benichevsky stated her wish that Lycan's death could quote, be undone, end quote. Although she minimized her responsibility for any of her actions stating, quote, I'm not sure what role I had in Lycan's death because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia, End quote. Taking Gertrude's good conduct in prison into account, the parole board marginally voted in favor of granting her parole. She was released from prison on December 4th, 1985.
0: Following her 1985 release from prison, Gertrude Beneshevsky relocated to Iowa. She never accepted full responsibility for Likens' prolonged torment and death insisting she was unable to precisely recall any of her actions in the months of Lycan's prolonged and increasing abuse and torment within her home. She primarily blamed her actions upon the medication she had been prescribed to treat her asthma. Gertrude Binashevsky lived in relative obscurity in Laurel, Iowa, until her death due to lung cancer on June 6, 1990, at the age of 61. Reflecting upon the news of Gertrude Binashevsky's death and the issues raised pertaining to her sanity, at both of her trials, John Dean, a former reporter for the Indianapolis Star, who had provided extensive coverage of the case, would state in 2015, quote, I never thought she was insane. I thought she was a downthrotting mean woman. Quote. Dean has also compared the case to William Gottling's novel Lord of the Flies. Although he has stated Lycan's increasing physical and emotional abuse was not a result of quote children going wild it was children doing what they were told, end quote, in reference to Gertrude Binishevsky's actual motive for tormenting and ultimately murdering lichens. Following her 1972 parole, Paula Bineshevsky assumed a new identity. She worked as an aide to a school counselor for 14 years at the Iowa Beanman Conrad Liscombe Union Witten School District. Having changed her name to Paula Pace, and having concealed the truth regarding her criminal history to the school district when applying for the position, she was fired in 2012 when the school discovered her true identity. Paula reportedly lives in a small town in Iowa. She is married and has two children. The baby daughter to whom she had given birth while being tried in 1966 and whom she named after her mother was later adopted.
1: The murder charges initially filed against Gertrude Benachevsky's second eldest daughter, 15-year-old Stephanie, were ultimately dropped after she agreed to turn state's evidence against the other defendants. Although prosecutors did resubmit their case against Stephanie before a grand jury on May 26, 1966, the decision later to prosecute her in a separate trial never materialized. Stephanie Benachevsky assumed a new name and became a school teacher. She later married and has several children. Stephanie Serekstad currently lives in Florida. When questioned at the trial as to her motive for turning state's evidence, Stephanie Benachevsky had claimed, quote, I'm just here in the hope I can help anybody. End quote. In response, her mother's attorney, William Erbecker, sneeringly replied, quote, including yourself. End quote. Following the arrest of their mother, The Marion County Department of Public Welfare placed Marie, Shirley, and James Binachevsky in the care of separate foster families. The surname of all three children was legally changed to Blake in the late 1960s, after their father regained their custody. Marie Shelton died of natural causes on June 8, 2017, at the age of 64. Dennis Lee Wright Jr. was later adopted. His adoptive mother named him Denny Lee White. He died on February 5, 2012, at the age of 47. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Benachevsky Jr. each served less than two years in the Indiana Reformatory before being granted parole on February 27, 1968. Richard Hobbs died of lung cancer on January 2, 1972, at the age of 21, four years after his release from the Indiana Reformatory. In the years between his release from the Indiana Reformatory and his death, he is known to have suffered at least one nervous breakdown. Following his 1968 release from the Indiana Reformatory, Coy Hubbard remained in Indiana and never attempted to change his name. Throughout his adult life, Hubbard was repeatedly imprisoned for various criminal offenses, on one occasion being charged with the 1977 murders of two young men. Although, largely due to the fact the chief witnesses to testify at his trial had been convicted criminal acquaintances of Hubbard's, who admitted to having been in his company at the time of the murders, he was acquitted of those charges. Shortly after the January 2007 premiere of the crime drama film An American Crime, Hubbard was fired from his job. He died of a heart attack in Shelbyville, Indiana, on June 23rd of that year at the age of 56. John Benachevsky Jr. lived in relative obscurity under the alias John Blake. He became a lay minister, frequently hosting counseling sessions to the children of divorced parents. Several decades after his release from the Indiana Reformatory, John Benachevsky Jr. issued a statement in which he acknowledged the fact that he and his co-defendants should have been sentenced to a more severe term of punishment, adding that young criminals are not beyond rehabilitation and describing how he had become a productive citizen. He died of diabetes in the Lancaster General Hospital on May 19, 2005, at the age of 52. Prior to his death, he had also occasionally spoken publicly about his past, readily admitting he had enjoyed the attention Lycan's murder brought upon him, and also claiming to have, quote, only ever hit Sylvia once, end quote.
0: The injury to person charges brought against the other juveniles known to have actively physically, mentally, and emotionally tormented lichens, Anna Ruth Sisko, Judy Darlene Duke, Michael John Monroe, Darlene McGuire, and Randy Gordon Leper were later dropped. Sisko ultimately married. She died on October 23, 1996, at the age of 44, already a grandmother. Leper, who had visibly smirked as he testified to having hit Likens on up to 40 separate occasions, died at the age of 56 on November 14, 2010. Jenny Likens later remarried an Indianapolis native named Leonard Reese Wade. The couple had two children. She died of a heart attack on June 23, 2004, at the age of 54. At the time of her death, Jenny resided in Beach Grove, Indiana. Fourteen years prior to her death, Jenny Likens Wade had viewed Gertrude Wineshevsky's obituary in a newspaper. She clipped the section from the newspaper, then mailed it to her mother with a note reading, quote,
1: Some good news, damn old Gertrude died, ha ha ha, I'm happy about that,
0: End quote. Elizabeth and Lester Likens died in 1998 and 2013, respectively. In the years prior to her own death, Jenny Likens-Wade had repeatedly emphasized no blame should be placed upon either of her parents for placing her and Sylvia in the care of Gertrude Bineshevsky, stating all her parents had done was trust Gertrude's promise to actually care for them until their return to Indiana with the traveling carnival. I see a light, hope, I feel a breeze, strength, I hear a song, relief, let them through for they are the welcome ones. This poem was inscribed upon the granite memorial formerly dedicated to Sylvia Likens, Life and Legacy in Willard Park, Indianapolis.
1: The house at 3850 East New York Street in which Likens was tortured and murdered stood vacant for many years after her death and the arrest of her tormentors. The property gradually became dilapidated. Although discussions were held in relation to the possibility of purchasing and rehabilitating the house, and converting the property into a women's shelter. The necessary funds to complete this project were never raised. The house itself was demolished on April 23rd, 2009. The site where 3850 East New York Street once stood is now a church parking lot. In June
0: 2001, a six foot tall granite memorial was formally dedicated to Sylvia Lykin's life and legacy in Willard Park, Washington Street, Indianapolis. This dedication was attended by several hundred people including members of the Lycans family. The memorial itself is inscribed with these words, quote, This memorial is in memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, loss changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. End quote. Okay, so I don't know if, if you guys are aware about this, or if you're aware about this, but I know that there are films that were made and some books as well about Sylvia Likens.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I know that the the movie An American Crime and also The Girl Next Door were based on the torture and murder of Sylvia Likens. Um, but I also believe that they were made in the same year.
0: I think so.
1: But I don't know who the actors are in there. Cause... Do you know any of the names of any of the books made about Sylvia Likens?
0: Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, one of them's called The Indiana Torture Slaying. Um, I know another one was The House, no, I was going to say The House of Indiana, but I think it's actually called House of Evil The Indiana Torture Slaying. Um, and I know that there's an old book out there and it's called The Basement Meditations of a Human Sacrifice. Um, those are the only ones that I know about. Did you also know that there's an episode on that show? Um, what was it? Um, Deadly Women. I think that's what it's called. There's Deadly Women in the Discovery Channel. Um, and the actual episode, I think, is called Born Bad. It's mm-hmm. it's on that show. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. But it's, uh, it's on that show where we saw that other episode about that, that Houston case.
1: The Sandra Milgar?
0: Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. But um, if anybody wants to, I guess... Find out more about what happened to you know Sylvia Likens. I think that would be in a short version of what happened to you know what really happened to uh, Sylvia Likens. I think it's like forty five minutes or yeah, something Yeah, like I that. think
1: it's about thirty to forty five minute um, little show documentary.
0: Yeah. yeah, and that'll do it for our first episode of What the Criminology. Um, if there are any cases you guys would like to hear, feel free to join us on our Facebook page, and um, go ahead and leave us you know a comment and a like. And, and, you know, on those comments, you can tell us, you know, whatever case you guys would like to listen to. Um, and if you're following us on Anchor, there's also a, like, a voice message tab. And you guys can leave a, a message there. And what we'll do is, um, like, any questions that you guys have about the case or anything like that. Um, and what we'll do is we'll record them. And we will air, um, like, an episode where our um, fans... We'll ask us questions or we'll just have an open discussion about um, about the case or, or anything that you guys want to talk about. So, yeah, I guess that'll be it for today. Um, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.